Lean Out. We've been doing a deep dive into the collapse of the Canadian media and the role that new legislation, Bill C-18, has played in exacerbating the crisis. My guest on the program today is someone who's thought a lot about the media and digital policy and public broadcasting, and she has a lot to say about where our media is at and where we go from here. Sue Gardner is a digital policy analyst and the former executive director of the Wikimedia Foundation. She's also the former head of cbc.ca. Sue Gardner is my guest today on Lean Out. Sue, welcome to Lean Out. Hi, Tara. Wonderful to have you on. So you are a former head of cbc.ca. You were at the CBC for 17 years, working in radio, TV, news, and of course, digital. Uh, You left Canada and went to the United States and ran the Wikimedia Foundation, which operates Wikipedia. A few years ago, you returned home to Canada after 15 years away because you wanted to play a part in the conversation over journalism and technology and to influence public policy around this. We'll get to our diagnosis of what's going on in the Canadian media in a moment. But first, what were your impressions of the state of our media when you arrived back in Canada? Oh, I mean, I it's a good question. I had been following Canadian media to some degree while I was away, right? Like I still kept consuming a bunch of Canadian media, which of course was easier now that we have the internet. So it wasn't a complete surprise to me. And also what's happened to Canadian media is happening everywhere. So again, not a surprise. But I will say that when I got back, I mean, one of the first things that struck me, and I say this all the time, um, I picked up the Globe and Mail when I first got back. And it was like a pamphlet, right? I was used to the Globe and Mail being a big, thick, heavy paper, you know, and you read it on the Saturday and it maybe took you four hours, right? And when I came back, the Globe and Mail was just like a, a little remnant, like a shadow of its former self. And then, you know, I, I started to see that everywhere, right? You can't see the absence of news all that easily, right? Because, you know, there are still papers. The fact that something is missing is less visible. Like the fact that there are fewer people working at like a current affairs program on CBC radio, that's not necessarily easily visible to a listener, right? Um, But it did seem super obvious to me. And of course, we know from all the research and scholarship that's been done into it, it did seem super obvious to me that the Canadian news media system was suffering, right? It was diminished. There was a lot less than there used to be. I think sometimes it's masked a little bit by the fact that the big brands, the big well-known brands still exist, like there still is a Globe and Mail. And so if you're older, like me, um, you have memories of what it used to be that you kind of carry forward, right? So you still sort of assume it's the same strong, well-resourced organization that it used to be, but they aren't, and it isn't. The news media is in trouble. Mm. And let's sort of dive into a diagnosis of the crisis that we're experiencing right now in the profession in general, but also very much so in in Canada specifically. Um, You just spent a year diving into public policy issues as a professor of the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill. I'm curious about what insights you came away with. If you think about this as a broad picture, what has gone wrong with our media? 
Yeah. And this is something that I've been studying and thinking about and concerned about for a super long time, right? Like I started, I, I studied journalism at what was then called Ryerson um, in, I think I graduated in 1990, right? And I worked as a working journalist for 10 years. And then I was a boss of journalists and et cetera, et cetera, right? So I've been an observer and a participant and watching it super closely for a long time. And I think, um, I think there are probably two main threads, maybe more, uh, to what's been happening. And I think one is related to there has been a, an enormous decline in trust in the news media. That is not a new thing, and it's not unique to Canada, and it's not confined to the news media itself. But trust in politicians is down. Trust in the justice system is down. Trust in corporations is down. And trust in the news media is also down, right? They're all in decline, and they have all been in decline in terms of public trust for, I don't know, 20, 30 years. So we are experiencing an overall decline in trust in the sort of institutions of society, that's been happening for a long time and it continues to happen and you can see how it's affecting the news media. And then I think um, the second piece is that the news media has a super specific business model problem right now, right? And, you know, everybody has talked about this for a long time, so I will keep it brief. But we know that the private sector news media used to have a business model that worked really well. They made journalism, and that journalism was financially supported by advertising, and it was profitable for, you know, the entirety of the 20th century. Then, when the internet came along, it broke that business model because advertisers had advertised in news media because it was the only way, really. It was the only game in town. It was the only way to reach people, to reach audiences. But when the internet came along, advertisers suddenly had many, many, many more and better options for reaching people. And so ad dollars left the news industry and that broke their business model. And this has resulted in what is really a crisis, a crisis for private sector media. And we've been seeing its effects for probably 20 years. And that's what I was describing earlier, you know, the Globe and Mail becoming a pamphlet, right? We see the emergence of news deserts. We see media organizations shutting down. We see media organizations laying off journalists. Um, and that results in less accountability journalism, less investigative journalism, less expensive kinds of journalism, right? And so that's the other major problem that we see. Both of those things are happening outside Canada as well as inside Canada. Um, and I think it might also be worth noting, you know, some very good things have happened, right? The media have improved in a bunch of ways. Um, and our access to news and to information has improved as well, right? So it's not all a bad news story, right? I mean, it is 100% true that we have access to more information and more diverse sources of information than we used to. You're younger than me, right? Are you younger than me? Probably. Yes. By a little bit. I'm 47. Okay, I'm 56. So you are you are younger than me. I remember like when I was a kid, when I was like straight out of school, it was really difficult for me to get access to like, I don't know, like the New Yorker or the New York Times or something like that, right? Like I had to, I was living in Fredericton after I graduated from school and, and I would have to special order those things into the convenience store down the street and they would come three days late and I had to pay a lot of money, right? 
that stuff now I can access that stuff easily, right? I can listen to podcasts on niche topics. I can access news media from other countries. We all can, right? So it's a golden age in terms of access to news and information in some ways for people who want it. Like we have a much broader diversity and array of places to get the news. So that is great. Um, and I think it's also true that in general, the 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 voices that are invited into our public discussions and debates there is a more diverse array of voices, right? We used to have, quote, like a mass audience, right? And there used to be gatekeepers. Um, and that screened out lots of voices, marginal voices. There were people who were assumed to kind of not count and they didn't get a voice. That's changed too, right? So that is also great. So, you know, good things have happened, um, but bad things have also happened. And I think that the bad things center around trust and they center around the business model. Mm. And I, I do want to come back to the issue of viewpoint diversity and to the issue of trust in a moment. But but first, let's turn our attention to Bill C-18. I know that you appeared in the Senate hearings around C-18 as well as in the House of Commons. We've been discussing this legislation on the podcast all summer with a range of guests, Peter Menzies, Jen Gerson, Holly Doan, Mark Edge, Michael Geist. Um, trying to understand the moment that we're in right now. Now, you told the House of Commons that Bill C-18 misdiagnoses the nature of the problem and that it won't actually support quality journalism. Walk us through your thinking on this legislation. Sure, I am happy to do it. And and I've listened to your podcast. I've listened to, to Jen and to Michael and Peter and et cetera. And it's great. And I think you should get Paula Simons on too, because she is also very good on this stuff. Um, she, as you know, I'm sure, you know, she was a, a reporter and a columnist with the Edmonton Journal for a long time, and she was a contributor to the CBC. Her diagnosis on this stuff is also very sharp and very well informed. Um, but let me give you my take. So my take, you know, I found C-18 profoundly misguided from the get-go. And I said it very early, along with people like Michael Geist and Peter Menzies. C-18 requires Google and Facebook to pay for what I would characterize as facilitating access to the news, right? So when they direct people to news organizations using links and headlines and snippets and tiny quotes and that kind of thing, um, C-18 now requires them to pay those publishers for doing that. And it is founded in the premise that I do think is deeply misguided, the premise that Google and Facebook are unfairly benefiting from hosting that stuff and that they are like, quote, stealing value from those publishers, right? That is misguided. The reason it's misguided is because, the, I mean, there's there's many reasons, but it is because the value travels in the opposite direction, right? Who benefits from Google and Facebook pointing people to news publisher websites? News publishers, right? That is why they vigorously compete to, you know, rank highly in Google search results. And they have their own, you know, Facebook um, pages where they are sharing their own news stuff. When people go to their websites, it makes them money, right? Because those people click on ads and those people are available to be turned into subscribers. Or if you're a nonprofit, they're available to maybe they're going to make a donation to you, right? Audience is what those news publishers need, right? And Google and Facebook help them get audience. And so the law is misguided from that standpoint. And I think also misguided, like deeply, deeply misguided from the standpoint of what is the internet and what is it good for? 
like the internet is good for links. That's what it's for, right? That you go on the internet and you travel around and you go from place to place, clicking on links and learning stuff and the ability to freely share information by linking to various things and following those links. That is the core beauty, right? Like that is the core benefit that the internet brings to us. And so anything that challenges that, anything that introduces friction to links, anything, you know, I feel like C18 kind of wants to turn the internet into cable television or something like that, right? Like something that is fundamentally commercial, that is the result of backroom negotiations and deals and money is changing hands. And that is not what the internet is for, right? The internet is for us to be able to go around and freely find information and wander around and learn stuff. And C18 introduces friction to that, makes that a little more difficult, makes it a little more complicated. That makes it a bad law that, in my view, is like anti-internet, like it fights the gravity of the internet. It is opposed to what the internet actually is, right? So... I found it profoundly misguided from the very beginning, and I spoke against it along with other people. But in my view, what was happening was the government had listened too much to organizations like News Media Canada, which is the lobby group that represents the newspapers. And I felt like, you know, when I came back to this country, I was hoping to be able to participate in, you know, sophisticated, nuanced, subtle, difficult conversations about how to navigate a path in the public interest for digital policy for Canadians. And I feel like what I instead stumbled into was much more like a 20th century fight where the 20th century, the former incumbents were successfully persuading the government to try to roll back the clock to their glory days, right? They wanted to be restored to their former positions of power and influence. They wanted the government to make that happen for them. And the government, unfortunately, seems to have bought it, right? Like they seem to have bought the false premises about the direction that the value travels. They seem to have bought the idea that turning back the clock is possible, right? And so that's why we find ourselves in the terrible mess that we're in today. Mm. And we know there has been a lot of lobbying around this bill. Uh, I know you were asked this in Parliament, um, so I it's already on the record. But just to reiterate here so our listeners know, do you personally have any commercial relationships with any of the platforms or any other parties involved in C-18? No. And thank you so much for asking me that. I asked the government to ask me that publicly because I I don't. I, I haven't taken any money ever from anybody who stands to benefit or is implicated in any way or will be harmed by C-18, with the exception of I worked at the CBC for 17 years. I got my last paycheck from the CBC in something like 2007. I think the Globe and Mail might have paid me for something I did for them, you know, 20 years ago. But no, like I don't get accept, ask for, take any money from any platforms or any news organizations in Canada um, and and the reason I think it's important to say that is because, you know, something that surprised me was I, as I was uh, witnessing and as I was being involved in these conversations, I kept having this feeling that 
government people felt like I was a shill for Google or for Facebook, which I found deeply ironic and kind of funny because I have been a frequent public critic of both of those organizations for privacy reasons and many other reasons for, you know, I don't know, 15 years. Um, and so it felt very weird to me to be um, cast in this role. And and it took me a while to figure out why it was happening. I did um, I did a bunch of analysis. I should probably publish this sometime, but I have not published it. But I did a bunch of analysis of the lobbying records um, and the witness records for the House committee um, and for the Senate committee as well, um, and also who Heritage met with. And what I found when I did that analysis was they really did not meet. It's not a surprise, but it was interesting to see the numbers. They really did not meet or hear very much from what I would characterize as like digital first players, right? Like internet people, right? Mostly who they heard from and listened to um, and got briefs from uh, were what I would call like legacy publications, right? Like newspaper organizations, long tenured broadcasters, things like that. And so what I realized, like there aren't a lot of voices advocating for the internet in the public interest to our politicians, right, in our political system. Again, there's Michael Geist, right? There's open media, there's the Internet Society, there's a small number of voices. So where I felt like I was talking to the government from the perspective of like the Internet in the public interest, I think the government has so little exposure to those ideas and those concepts that I think it lumped me in with the people they do hear from who are sometimes Google, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, whatever, right? So so I feel like to me, the fact that I was I felt like I was being cast in that way was evidence supported um, this idea that the government just doesn't have a lot of facility in this area, right? You can blame them for that, and I probably do. <laughs> and you can also sort of acknowledge that it's a newer space. And so, you know, there's only a small number of advocates for the internet in the public interest. I would argue it suggests that we need more advocates and more resources going into advocacy for digital policy in the public interest, because I think there's such a huge lack of it. I mean, I'll just, I'll stop in a second, but I'll just say, like, I watched the C-11 hearings, and you could see it there, and you could see it in the C-18 hearings, too. The digital people coming forward and speaking to the government, it was their first time ever doing that, right? They do not have government, like, like YouTube creators, right? They do not have government relations departments. They formed organizations and associations precisely to respond to C-11 and C-18 from a defensive posture because they felt like those bills were going to hurt them and were against their interests. But they were appearing for the very first time, like in ordinary street clothes, right? Like without a well-argued, you know, succinct brief in both languages. You know what I mean? They're just new to it. There isn't enough of it happening. So anyway, thank you for asking asking me that question. Mm, and, and the digital realm is something I really wanted us to get into here, because one of the things that became clear to me during the Senate hearings on C-18, reading the documents and the submissions, is that the innovation and the growth in Canadian media is really happening in the independent press and in the digital realm. So just one small example, Holly Doan of Blacklock's reporter in her interview with me, quotes a Department of Heritage document that showed that since the beginning of the pandemic, 78 news outlets have closed. But in that same period, 57 local news outlets have launched. When you look around at the innovation that is happening in the digital space, what do you see? 
It's so interesting. It's so interesting. And yes, there is a lot of innovation happening in Canada. And I, I have come to, you know, see more of it and experience more of it. And it's very interesting. Um, I always go back to Clay Shirky, uh, NYU professor, um, wrote an essay. I think it was back in like 2008 or something. And it was called Newspapers, Thinking the Unthinkable. And the premise of his argument was exactly what we're talking about now, right? The premise of his argument was newspapers are dead. The old news industry is dead. It has been destroyed, broken by the internet. And therefore, what we need at this time is a flourishing of innovation. Everybody needs to try every possible thing. There need to be a million experiments. Most of them will fail right? We don't know at this time what will work, but that is exactly why we need to be experimenting. Folks will come up, they will they will iterate, they will continuously improve, and they will land some of them on things that work. He wrote that in 2008, right? I believe. So that's terrible, right? Because it's a thousand years later, and we are still very much at the beginning stages. We are not innovating quickly enough. We are not supporting in innovators enough. We are not learning fast enough, and we are not finding solutions fast enough. That said, there is some great stuff happening in Canada. There is some really interesting experimentation from all manner of standpoints, right? Like all different kinds of niche audiences, you know, people doing very interesting commentary work, people doing really interesting work from political, particular political perspectives, or doing work for very, very specific audiences. It's all very interesting. I would say um, a couple of things. Like one is, you want to innovate from a business model perspective, right? So you need to be trying different things to figure out what works. And so it's great that there are folks structuring themselves as charities. It's great that there are folks, you know, finding new ways to make ads work, getting subscribers to their Substack, like that kind of stuff is all fantastic. Some of that stuff is naturally going to be focused on audiences that have money, right? Um, because you need to pay for the thing. And if you're on a user pay model, you need to be targeting people who will pay or people who have expense accounts, people whose companies will pay. So that's fine for the individual innovator. It makes a ton of sense, but it is not great for our goal of having a generally informed public, right? And that is something that has been happening in the industry more broadly, like changes in how people consume media and who consumes media, right? We are finding ourselves, there is no longer a mass audience, right? There are micro niche audiences. Some of them are highly news interested and they will pay for news and that is great. And those innovators, those entrepreneurs are going to do fine, but it leaves aside a separate problem, which is what do we do about the people who are low news interest, which often overlaps with serious skepticism and lack of trust in the news media. It's a societal problem because for democracy to function well, we need to have a generally well-informed public. There have always been people who are low interest, but they used to get X amount of ambient exposure to the news. And today they don't, right? Because it used to be that you were watching a sitcom and then the Cyber Hour TV news came on afterwards. So you sat there and watched it or somebody in your house, you know, there was a newspaper in the break room at your work, right? So you would read a little bit of it, even if you didn't care that much. News consumption now 
is much more individual. It's much more personal. It's on your phone. There's less sharing. There's less ambient exposure. And I don't know about you, but in my personal life, I know now lots of people who have opted out of consuming the news completely. Like they have just opted out. And part of the reason they've opted out is because there is a plethora of other stuff to do with your leisure time, your entertainment time. I have a lot of friends who play a ton of video games, right? Like really immersive, awesome video games. I have a lot of friends who binge watch Netflix or are exploring some, you know, particular thread of filmmaking that is very interesting to them. So in a world of limitless choice, some people are just falling away from news consumption entirely, right? And the more that we're dependent on user pay business models, the more those people are kind of left aside because definitionally they don't have the impetus, they don't have the interest to pony up to pay, right? The reason that's a societal problem is because we want to have an informed citizenry. It's bad for everybody if the level of sort of knowledge of basic events and how things work is low. That is bad for all of us, right? So that's a challenge. I think Upshot, you know, what I would say about the experimentation and innovation that is happening is it is good. It should be encouraged as much as possible. Part of the problem with C18 is that it will harm those players. They're telling us, right? It will harm them. Google and Facebook at this time are planning to exit the Canadian market entirely. Facebook is already doing it. Google says that they will begin doing it soon. If that happens, as we know, it's the digital startups, it's the innovative players who are going to be the most hurt by that exit because they don't have the famous, well-established sort of national brand. So people aren't going to necessarily as easily type in their URL in their browser window and, and go there by choice, right? Those organizations, those little startups are very dependent on social media and very dependent on appearing high in search engine results to get their traffic for discoverability so people can find them, right, and develop a bond and become interested in them and maybe start to pay for them. So they're going to be harmed by C18, which is a tragedy because circling back to like where I started this answer, Clay Shirky, 2008, telling us we needed a million miles of experimentation. He was 100% true. We are already slow and late. We do have innovation happening. We do have new things starting, but they are provisional and tentative and some of them aren't going to work and they are no replacement for what we have lost, right? So we are not on a good path, we're we're on a path, but we need way more experimentation and way more support of the experimenters. And we need a broad-based strategy, a public policy strategy, right, for how we are going to handle news and the news sector in general. Um, and so, you know, the experimentation is good, but there's not enough of it. That's the gist of it. Mm. And I mean, now is a good time for us to talk about the CBC, where you were an executive, I was a rank and file current affairs radio producer. I have pretty strong views about uh, what's gone wrong at the public broadcaster, but I do very much want it to survive and thrive. And I have been quite influenced by your research and writing and talks on the role of a public broadcaster, that it, what it can do for society. I'm concerned about the polling we've seen recently, especially from Spark Advocacy, that shows that a significant portion of the Canadian public, including of liberal voters, are drawn to the idea of defunding it. Um, what is your analysis of what has gone wrong at the CBC? And in your view, what needs to be done about it? 
okay, so it's a dangerous question to ask me because I could talk about this for 600,000 years, right? <laughs> so I will try to restrain myself, but but I do, I have a I have a lot to say about the CBC. So yes, I did work at the CBC for 17 years. I am a big supporter of the importance of public media. I consider myself a friend of the CBC. I like the CBC. I want it to succeed and be excellent. Um, and I've written pretty extensively about the history and the purpose of public media. And I've done a lot of thinking about the challenges for public media in adapting to the digital era. So I'm super pleased to talk about this. And I think um, I think there are probably, I don't know, a couple major themes, right? So one thing is the adaptation to the digital era, right? So public media was... It was founded in order to ensure that the people had a solid fact base from which to understand their world. Its purpose is to, and you know, this is in the Broadcasting Act, its purpose is to link the country together. That's what they were all supposed to do, right? To host the country's debates and discussions, to ensure that people have the information that they need to make good decisions for their lives. It's not intended to mandate what those good decisions are, right? It's intended to host the debates and discussions, frame up the issues, and give people a basic level of understanding. Public media was, you know, depending on who you ask, public media was either created in an era in which there was a mass audience, or more likely, it called into existence that mass audience. So you had a nation, and, you know, nice country would be nice if you could keep it, right? You had a nation, and then you made a public broadcaster, and it sort of called into existence that nation, because it told the stories to the people, and it enabled the people to hear from other regions, other parts of the country. So the first challenge for public media is it it its transition to a digital environment. And when I say that, I don't mean things like how do you do news on the internet compared to how you do news for radio or news for television. I mean it more in the sense of the mass audience, right? Um, there is no mass audience anymore. Like there is no world in which everybody sits down at 10 p.m. or whatever it is and watches the national and the journal. That world doesn't exist anymore. And so you have to ask yourself at a super high level, you have to ask yourself, what is the purpose of the public broadcaster and how does it do its work in a world in which you you don't have a mass audience? You can't summon that. I think the last time the CBC, this might not be true, but my impression is that the last time the CBC commanded a big audience of people sitting down together to have an experience together was, um, I think it was the Tragically Hip concert. I think the CBC hosted the live stream on television, I think, of and probably on the internet as well, of what I believe was the farewell concert of the Tragically Hip. I was out of the country at the time, and I remember hearing about it. Like Friends of mine would say, oh, yeah, we stayed in to watch the Tragically Hip thing. That is partly because of my demographics, right? Like my age group is the age group that's going to be, you know, compelled by that. But I think it was, it was a moment, right? It was a real moment where many people across the country came together, right? That is really rare now. That used to happen every night with the national. It doesn't happen anymore. That's not how people use the media anymore. There just isn't a mass audience. So in a world that is much more fragmented, in which, again, people have limitless choice, they can go anywhere, they can consume anything. How do you 
create the the social cohesion, right? Because it flies in the face of the gravity of the internet, like the internet splinters, the internet enables you to go down rabbit holes. It enables, it enables you to like follow your special interest. Like I've recently been on this internet rabbit hole where I've been finding on Spotify, um, uh, it's awful, heavy metal covers of heavy metal music by cellos organization cellists right i've been re- listening to all this cellist heavy metal music covers like it's nuts right the fact that that exists and that there's enough of an audience for it for it to be like a little stream on spotify that i can find and access like that's nuts right but that's what the internet does it has a fragmenting sort of gravity to it so in that context what does the public broadcaster do what does public media do its job is to bring the country together its job honestly is to create social cohesion right and so how do you do that should you still do that right should should your job be something different now right that is um, i think a major sort of challenge um confronting our public broadcaster and and all public broadcasters but we have another challenge in canada that is specific to us and that is I don't know if they say this. I always love talking to CBC people because sometimes they tell me, I haven't been there for a long time, and sometimes people tell me new ways that they talk at the CBC. But when I was at the CBC, we used to sometimes use the phrase, did you ever hear this, a little bit pregnant, that the CBC was a little bit pregnant? No, I've never heard that. (laughs) Okay, maybe it was just me and my friends. But we used to say the CBC was a little bit pregnant. What we meant by that was the CBC was ad-supported, right? It, It had commercial revenues. And that is like, in our analogy, that was like being a little bit pregnant, meaning you can't be a little bit pregnant. And so, you know, the CBC unusually among public broadcasters, the vast majority of public broadcasters really never had any commercial revenues, maybe a tiny little marginal bit, but not really. CBC um, television always had commercial revenues. And when I was at CBC.ca, I put advertisements on CBC.ca. I did that like on purpose. Um, And I did it because... At that time, CBC.ca was having a hard time being taken seriously um, by the corporation. And, you know, I was being told by senior executives that the Internet was the CB radio of the 90s. That was the kind of thing people thought, right? They thought it was a flash in the pan. It was going to disappear. And so in order to have it be taken seriously, I wanted it to be a revenue generator, right? Because that would make it, it was no longer a cost center, just an expense, right? It would actually have a seat at the table because it was helping to make some money. but. The CBC generally um, has been a little bit pregnant for much of its existence, and that is a huge problem for the corporation because, and, and again, specific to Canada, the reason it's a problem is because the public broadcaster, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, the public broadcaster has a different job than private sector media, right? It is rooted in what is essentially a kind of market failure argument, right? Um, although it also has like core purpose, completely independent of the private sector, right? So for example, public media has historically typically been considered responsible for things like, for example, helping new immigrants understand the country and kind of get their head around what the country's like and, you know, what the issues are, stuff like that. That's not a private sector obligation. The pri- Why would the private sector do that? They would do that if there was money in it, but they don't have an obligation to do it, right? Or to broadcast in multiple indigenous languages, et cetera, right? CBC has public service obligations that the private sector does not have. So when you put ads and when you make commercial revenues important to the CBC, which I will side note to say, 
I lived through all of that at the CBC. I started at the CBC at the time that the government started cutting the parliamentary allocation to CBC. Um, I was the last intern hired to work at the CBC for many years. And during my entire time working at the CBC, it's different now. But when I worked at the CBC, I was very often the youngest person in every room because I walked in the door and then the door shut, right? We were in cut mode. We were not in growth mode. So everybody I worked with, you know, the workforce was frozen, right? Which is bad for the relevance of the public broadcaster, right? You need diversity, you need different age groups, you need all manner of different kinds of people. And we kind of froze. That is actually one of the problems that the CBC has been having. Although I think it's been a little bit better recently. But my point is, I worked at the CBC through the entire period of the cuts. The cuts, by the way, most people don't know this, but the cuts were primarily um, put in place. It was the liberals who cut the CBC the most. It wasn't the conservative party. But the CBC went through many, many, many rounds of cuts and therefore both spun up more attempts to make commercial revenues and became more dependent on commercial revenues overall. That was a considered strategy, right, to you know be able to continue the CBC's existence and have it not be extremely diminished. And so it was an attempt to sort of save the CBC. But it was um, super challenging and problematic because it made the CBC more like a private broadcaster, more like a private media organization. And I don't know if you remember um, when Richard Sturzberg was executive vice president for English, um, I think he was the first person to use the phrase, what was it, a, a publicly funded commercial broadcaster? Do you remember that phrase being used? I've heard that phrase being quoted by Peter Menzies, which it, in his interview with me, where he said he heard that at CRTC hearings. Yeah. Yeah, I think he yeah, I think he heard it at the CRTC. I think we heard it from Richard himself when I was at the CBC. Um and and I'm not sure how Richard meant it, right? Like I don't know if he meant it as a flat description or an endorsement or a criticism, I am not sure. If it was used in front of the CRTC, it was probably thought to be a good thing, right? But it is not a good thing. Publicly funded uh, commercial broadcaster doesn't make any sense. Why would the public pay for a commercial broadcaster? Commercial broadcasters have business models and they make money and they operate inside the market. So it doesn't make sense to pay to duplicate that, right? And we've seen, and I've been very interested to see, um, that the private sector journalism, the private sector media companies have seemed to increasingly perceive the CBC as a competitor. You know, you hear it from um, some of the newspaper organizations. I've heard Jesse Brown talk about it. Um, and there are some ways in which the CBC is inherently going to be a competitor of the private sector, right? There's one pool of journalists that you can hire from, you know. Um, so in that way, it's always going to be a competitor. But when the CBC becomes a competitor for ad dollars, and particularly at a time when ad dollars to the industry are in huge decline and the industry is really, really suffering and is trying to figure out how it's going to keep itself going, then the CBC um, becomes a problem, right? It becomes a problem. It makes the industry worse. It sort of deepens the problems, the financial problems in the industry. But it also has much more, in my view, important implications for its role in providing a public service. The CBC is not supposed to ape 
um, commercial incentives. It's not supposed to fit into commercial incentives and sort of ape commercial models. The market will do that. The CBC is supposed to do something different. And so Michael Geist and other people, Peter Chu, have been making, I think, really persuasive arguments about the role of the CBC and particularly about how it needs to be distinctive, right? It needs to do its own job, not do CTV's job or the Globe and Mail's job. That is sort of easy to say at a high level, much harder to say at a, at a practical day-to-day level, like when it comes like, what stories do you assign, like stuff like that. But but it is foundational and it is super important. So let me try to sum that up because that was long. To try to sum it up, you know, the CBC started seeking commercial revenues and became increasingly dependent and therefore came to act and possibly to understand itself um, as a player in a commercial marketplace. To the extent that that is real and true, it's a problem because it's not their job and it doesn't justify if all they're going to do is replicate what the commercial um folks do, then why is Canada giving them, I think it's $1.2 billion in a parliamentary appropriation every year, right? We set up the CBC for a reason. We wanted specific things from it. We should get those things. Its job is to serve the public interest, right? And to be a public good for Canadians. So that's my headline, I guess, my very long headline um, on the CBC. And I want to just touch before we close briefly on this issue of, of viewpoint diversity, which which has to do with the broader aims of bringing the country together, of social cohesion, of the country having a conversation with itself and kind of uh, hashing out some of these difficult issues that we face as a, as a country, as a pluralistic society. Um, and I think, you know, there's there's an argument to be made that the CBC does not have balance. And I've, I've made that myself that argument. I think, you know, they've done a lot to increase the racial diversity of their workforce, which is a laudable goal. Um, They have focused less on uh, viewpoint diversity and that, you know, oftentimes the guests are urban, they're highly educated, they're financially well off, um, they're secular. So there, there seems to be a lack of viewpoint diversity. And even if one does not agree with me on that. The public seems to perceive that. So the the public trust in the CBC to kind of facilitate that national conversation of Canadians with ourselves is very low right now. What do you think can be done to to amend that issue of of balance and viewpoint diversity? Yeah, let me let me react to a little bit of what you said, and then I'll tell you what I what I do think can be done. And it's such a fascinating in, issue, and it's so worth unpacking. And there's so much in it, right? Um, I think I wanna I wanna make a note, which is that journalists in general um, have more in common with each other than they have with non-journalists, right? It's a certain kind of person who goes into journalism. And I think there have been, I don't know about Canada, but I think there have been 10 trillion studies done in the United States that find that yes, almost all journalists vote for the democratic party, right? Like it's just a thing, right? Um, and I think that isn't because 
media companies set out to hire those people, it's because, you know, those tend with with exceptions, but those tend to be the people who go into the business, right? Um, because as you say, like they tend to be, I mean, it used to be different, right? A long time ago, journalism was a blue collar job. It wasn't a profession, quote, profession. It's probably returning to being a blue collar job in some ways, right? But um, but there was this period where you know, what we used to call it at the CBC again in my day, right? And there might have been an equivalent to this in your day. I don't know. And you should tell me if there is. But what we used to call it in the um, when I was there was uh, the annex voice, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's so funny. I had not heard that, but that is very much what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And it was tough, right? Because it was true. And so anybody listening to this podcast who doesn't know Toronto, the annex is a neighborhood in Toronto. And the annex, what, what we meant when we talked about the annex voice, we were being self-critical, right? But what we meant was, you know, everybody lives in the annex, they're baby boomers, they bought a gorgeous Victorian house for $3 and, you know, put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into renovating it. And now it's wonderful. And they have dinner parties where other journalists come from other media organizations and they have really nice wine. And, you know, maybe their kids are in private schools and they all saw, they all went to TIFF and saw all the movies and they can talk thoroughly and engagingly about the many books that they are reading and blah, 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 right? Um, yes. And in, in this day and age, what goes along with that is a very progressive, a politically progressive viewpoint, which by the way, I come from and often share, but that is the politics of what's going on. Yeah, that's right. And 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 it's a particular, I don't know if I would characterize it as progressive because fundamentally it's kind of status quo, right? Things are going okay for me, right? So so it's nice liberal guilt and self-affliction and stuff like that. Like, like what is it? Self-flagellation. <laughs> um, you know, but 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 it is a thing. It's totally a thing, right? It's absolutely a thing. And it's not, again, not confined to the CBC, right? I'm sure it's the same at most media organizations to varying degrees, but the CBC is very big. And also the CBC is voice, right? It, you can um it's a little more opaque in print sometimes, but in voice, you know, I will find myself listening to the CBC and, um, you know, I do feel it, it is coming from a comfortable place, right? Um, I have been feeling recently, and particularly during the pandemic, when I would listen to the CBC, I, I kept hearing people, journalists, hosts, asking for hope, asking um, their interviewers for like signs of hope. Um, and, you know, like in the heart of the pandemic or in George Floyd's summer with Black Lives Matter or concerns about climate change or whatever, right? There was always this, you know, things are very dark. What 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 are the silver linings? What signs of hope can we look for? And it was funny because I always felt like I didn't feel like that was coming from the people, really. I felt like that was the journalists themselves, right? Like wanting hope. <laughs> and I can sort of see why people... Um, would would want if you're making a radio program, you don't want it to be all doom and gloom. Like you want it to have an upside. You want to have a little bit of fun. So I can see why there's some sort of craft reasons to want that. But I also found it just odd, right? Um, because the job, you know, I don't know. I felt like there was a baby boomer kind of thing happening, right? Where it's like I do have my Victorian mansion in the annex, and I would like to think that my kids and my grandkids are going to be okay. And so please comfort me and please make me feel that things are going to be all right. Anyway, it's a real thing, the annex voice, right? And I feel like it's always been a risk, right? It's always, you know, because um, media has been 
journalism has been a well-paid job and it is easy to get comfortable and to feel comfortable. And, you know, people at the CBC, I think, still have pensions and stuff like that, right? And that is not true um, for all Canadians, you know? So it becomes different as journalism becomes more precarious, right? Journalism is becoming precarious work. And so maybe journalists will start to perhaps more reflect the realities for Canadians, you know, as they become more like average Canadians, possibly. But anyway, um, when it comes to solutions, I think the solutions are you need to be close to the audience. And this is one of the problems that I see with our loss of so much local news, right? Local news um, is very close to the audience. Local news is often stuff like local sports or a local charitable initiative or, you know, someone you actually know standing up at city council and making a little speech about something, right? It's very local and it's very close to the people. And you hear from the people on local stuff in ways that you don't at a national level. And it's also true that national news is more partisan. It's more divisive. You know, it's 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 it it, it lends itself to um, people being divided and yelling at each other and getting locked down in their positions. And things are more political where local is less. Right. And so the loss of local news is is contributing to this problem. It's contributing to the lock, lack of trust. And it's contributing to um, people just falling away from journalism and consuming it less. So I think the Reuters Institute, there, there are lots of organizations that have done reports and studies about why people are trusting the news less. Reuters did a really good one. I think in general, what folks are finding is, you know, we're living in a time where people are distrustful of power. That is partly because the internet, because the internet took away the gatekeepers and people could talk to each other and voices that would previously have been fringe or marginal, whether trustworthy or not, you know, got access to a megaphone, right? Got access to the ability to speak. And so we heard them, people heard them. And so we started thinking new things, right? Also, the world is kind of not in a great place right now, you know? Um, younger generations, like I'm so fascinated by Generation Z, right? Like they're so interesting. We can only assume that they will never be able to afford to buy a house. The healthcare systems in this country are crumbling. I've been back for two years. I can't get a family doctor. If you're not grandfathered in, you're never going to get a family doctor, right? That's kind of interesting. Um, and we have climate, you know, we have all kinds of stuff happening. And we are, I think we generally people are pretty uneasy about what is going on. And what we're finding in studies and surveys and et cetera, is that people aren't trusting the news media because they believe that the news media are too close to power, that the news media are like handmaidens to power. They are mouthpieces for power. And we are concerned that people in power don't really care about us. They are not acting in our best interest. They are not responsive to us. We push the button, we tell them what we want, and something else happens, right? We don't get what we said, even though they're supposed to represent us. So if that's correct, if that sort of basic kind of analysis is correct, then the path back for the CBC, for anybody, for the Globe and Mail, for whomever, the path back to public trust 
is to reorient. It's to care about ordinary people. In practical terms, that means things like rebuilding your local operations. Um, but it also means at a very high level, like, you know, the most famous quote about journalism that I remember, the one that was um, powerful for me when I was like a baby journalist, was the idea of afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. That's mm -hmm. what I felt our job was. Our job mm -hmm. was ask tough questions of people in power, hold people's feet to the fire, hold them to account, you know, be tough on them. And then with the people, center the people, right? Center them and, and talk about the things that they care about. Talk about the things that are interesting them. Cover the issues that really matter. Stay out of the horse race coverage. Do a good job. But always, always, always centering the interests and needs of the public, not corporations, Ottawa, you know, bureaucrats, whatever, right? Industry, but rather centering the needs of the public. That's, you know, been my vantage point talking about C18. I'm trying to center the needs of people, of ordinary Canadians. That's why I was disappointed about C18 because I came back to this country and I found that we were talking to industry and we were centering industry and we were doing what industry told us to do. And now we're in this terrible place where, you know, it's going to be harder for people to access news. The news industry is going to lose a bunch of money. There's going to be less journalism available to the people. The problem is not solved. And that's because we centered industry. We didn't center the people. Right. So I think that's the answer. Right. There's no shortcut to it. But the answer is care about the people, talk about the stuff that matters to them, engage on the in the issues and engage from their perspective, centering what they need and want. It's the, it's a long road. Right. But that is the road back. Mm. Well, that is such a good place to leave it, uh, you know, on a note of the public, the public interest and, and listening to our readers and listeners and viewers. Um, Sue, I appreciate your work so much. Thank you for taking the time to come on the show Thank today. Thank you so much for having me. It was really interesting. Thank you. is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. <laughs>